0: John. Yep. All right, if you have a Bible, if you could please open up to Luke chapter 10. We'll also be spending quite a bit of time in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Well, this morning we are entering into week two of our series, 2020 Vision. And this morning we are addressing... What is undoubtedly one of the grandest topics to ever occur to the human mind since the dawning of creation, the love of God. Um, I was looking at different quotes regarding the love of God, but I don't think you're going to find one greater than this hymn. Listen to these words. The love of God is greater still than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O oh, love of God, how rich, how pure, how oh, measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure, the saints' and angels' song. Could we, with the ink the ocean fill, and were the skies a parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Would you pray with me? God, thank You for Your Word that we were able to look at this morning. And the grandest thing that You ever called Your creation to do, to be lovers of their Creator. We thank You that we can love because You first loved us. Lord, I pray that You would speak to hurting hearts, This morning, I pray that you would speak to soaring hearts alike and that your word, oh God, would meet us right where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. Well, as we walk through this series on 2020 vision, what we're unpacking is our mission statement, but we're doing it in three separate parts. What it means to share together in the life of Christ, which Pastor John spoke about last week, what it means for us to love God both individually and as a community of faith here at Redeemer Fellowship, which is what we're going to be speaking on this week, and what it means to love neighbor again as individuals, but as we speak about our mission and vision for 2020 and beyond, what it means for us to love our neighbor as a body and what it means for our love to engage the community in which God has placed us. Two things about the mission statement that are worth saying before we dig into our scripture this morning regarding what it means to love God. First, although we're breaking this down into three distinct parts for the purpose of the series, none of these are in fact distinct. They all bleed together. As we shared together in the life of Christ, the natural outgrowth of that is loving God and loving our neighbors. We grow as lovers of God, as we're going to see in our text this morning. It creates within us this missional call to be able to see people the way that Christ saw people and to love our neighbor because that is the very heart of Christ who said that his mission when he came to this earth was to seek and save that which is lost. So these three segments all have overlap and perhaps that's not even the best word for it. Each of these flow in and out of one another. Secondly, I would not feel right addressing the question of what it means to love God without first pointing out a necessary precursor to that. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we are only able to love God because He loved us first. Look, this is not something that I mention as a mere disclaimer. I mention it because it is dangerous to preach about loving God without first grounding it in the fact that He loved you first preachers who have taught on how to love God and specifically our shortcomings and tried to deal with our shortcomings when it comes to being able to love God who do not ground that message in the fact that our love is merely a response to a love that was initiated first by Christ and that we are radically loved first. Well, they end up often preaching some of the most condemning Shame driven sermons that do not portray God or our relationship with God accurately. The idea of God being the initiator of love is literally cover to cover in the Bible. The Lamb of God is called the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, who literally loved you prior to existence. Itself and loved you so much that he knew that it would cost the life of the second person of the Trinity, yet created you anyway in love, as Ephesians 1 says. When man fell and rebelled against God, knowing that God had previously said that on the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall Die and that they were knowingly choosing a death sentence by disobeying a holy God. God is the one who loved them, who found them, who pursued them, who chased them when they were completely okay with hiding in the bushes and covering themselves in fig leaves. When God's people were slaves in Egypt, God was the one who initiated their redemption and raised up a deliverer because he loved his people and did not want them to be in bondage, but wanted them to be free so that it could serve as a picture of the exodus that we are called out of when we are called into Christ, not to live in bondage anymore, but those whom the Son has set free is free indeed. When men demonstrated over and over their inability to keep God's holy law, making man unable to come to God, God came to man. And again, initiated first, being born of lowly estate and was obedient to the law to the point of perfection, even though it cost him his life at the very hands of the ones that he came to save, because God is in love with a rebellious people. Hear that here this morning. God is in love with a bunch of rebels like you and me. And even as we sit here today, it's not because you called his name. It's because he called yours. It's because He first named you that we can call On Him. It's because He chose you. It's because He adopted you. It's because He chose to lavish His grace upon you with all wisdom and insight when you by nature were a child of wrath. It's because He justified you and laid down His life, the just for the unjust. And it's because He atoned for your sins. God always is the one who initiates love. We are mere responders to that. And to talk about loving God is anything other than a response to the love that was initiated in the heart of God itself does the greatest topic ever preached a disservice. So brothers and sisters, God loves you. If you hear nothing else this morning, God loves you so much that He sent His only Son to die for you so that you could be able to be sitting here and being able to worship the true God of heaven and having a relationship with Him. We simply cannot preach about loving God without making His love for you abundantly Clear with the clearest and most passionate plea that we know how to make because His love is worthy. And He is worthy. We are assembled here today because of the love of God being a reality in our lives as demonstrated to the person of Jesus Christ who came to bring us back to God through His atoning death. And if you put your faith in that, you can know Him right now and be a recipient of that love for all of eternity. So with that as the base coat, the fact that we are loved by God, by the way, is implied right in the first part of our mission statement. We can only share together In the life of Christ, like John preached last week, because we are loved by Christ and because through His love we are brought into union with Christ. So again, let that be your base coat as we look at what it means to love God. And first, let's look at the lawyer's question again to set up our text. Look with me at verses 25 through 27 of chapter 10. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. I don't feel the need to go too far into the background or the dynamics between the lawyer and Jesus, or what his end game was in trying to test Jesus, or the paradox where the lawyer actually gives the right answer to Jesus' question, but in doing so shows that by giving the right answer that he never understood the question that he was asking Jesus to begin with because John did a great job and knocked that out of the park last week. But I'd like you to take notice of the order of the question in which the way it is asked and answered in verse 27 to see how the answer unfolds the commandment in verse 27 is to love the Lord and to love our neighbor as ourself yet when Jesus addresses it he does something funny doesn't he 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 skips right to the second part of the question he starts immediately going in on what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. So interestingly enough, going off the lawyer's answer to the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But what actually follows is the greatest passage in terms of what it means to love your neighbor, probably the most information filled passage on what it means to love your neighbor in the entirety of scripture. And what it does is explain what it means to love our neighbor in a better way than has probably ever been written. And it gives you this thorough treatment of who is my neighbor and what does it mean for me to love them. I think that this passage is written in such a way to kind of make the reader ask a question at the end of the Good Samaritan passage. Well, Jesus, you you, you answered what it means to love God or to love neighbor, but what about loving God? Jesus just gave this brilliant answer on what it means to love our neighbor, and we're going to look at that next week. But surely he had to have something to say about what it means to love God. I mean, he just finished saying that that is the most important thing. Surely Jesus wouldn't just skip over and take for granted that this guy understood what it meant to love God and just go right in to loving neighbor merely to just answer only half of and engage half of the lawyer's questions. So let me be clear on this. What Jesus is doing is showing the lawyer that asking this question shows that he does not primarily have a problem with men. He primarily has an issue with God. This is a theological question that the lawyer is asking to Jesus. The interaction stemmed from a theological problem and a heart problem more than it ended up being a people problem. So when Jesus is answering him in the next passage, he is not answering a people problem, but he is showing him the very roots of his theological problem. So if this is true, then why is it that when Luke 10 is usually taught It's usually taught in such a way where Jesus is answering the question of how do we define what our love for our neighbor is, but it never actually deals with the commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right after that parable of what it means to love our neighbor, Luke gives us this real life situation, the story that you may know as the Mary, Mary and Martha story. <clears throat> and check this out because it's really neat. What he does is he takes this real life story and uses it as a sort of parable on what it means to explain the love of God. Hear me clearly on this. I- I'm not saying that the story of Mary and Martha is a parable. I'm not saying that it did not happen or that it is any less than factual, very real history. But. God often uses people's real life stories parabolically to point to spiritual truths. I mean, think of Gomer and Hosea, right? That whole book was a parable where he uses the prophet Hosea to illustrate. God's love for this wayward people who continued to be adulterous in their hearts towards him. And he uses Hosea or Gomer as this picture of the fickle Israelites and their inability to commit to this God that they have covenanted to. Or think about the reign of the wicked king Manasseh in 2 Kings, which was a picture that was used parabolically to be able to describe the wickedness of the hearts that the people of Israel had sunk to during his Or how about how Jesus uses this technique all the time when he takes the blind man in John chapter 5 who receives sight. This is a real-life healing that was used parabolically to point out the blindness of the spiritual leaders of Israel and pointing that the way of Jesus is the one that somebody is able to gain true sight while the way that those who think that they are seeing, it's demonstrating that they're truly blind and they're not able to see. Or just one more, think of John 4. Jesus with the woman at the well. This is a real-life encounter with a real-life woman at a real-life well and they were in need of real-life water. Yet Jesus turns this story on its head to show this woman that she was truly in need of the living waters that would truly satisfy. So using real life situations and to be able to speak through those real life situations. And also beyond those real life situations is a very regular teaching style for Jesus. And the Good Samaritan is very clear on how it answers The lawyer's question, but Mary and Martha is a little bit more subtle, subtle enough that it's often read as if it's an altogether different passage and it's given its own treatment as if it's not connected to a greater context. So before we look at what this passage has to say about loving God, how do we know that this part of the text that we know is the story of Mary and Martha is actually intended to be an answer to the love God portion of the question well a few things the way that it describes Jesus and his disciples as being on their way in verse 38 look at this it says now as they went on their way Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house and she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to his teaching but Martha was distracted with so much serving and she went to my sin uh, and she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about so many things. But One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. So <clears throat> verse 38 starts off with talking about on, being on their way. So it's a clear connection to the previous story. I mean, think about engaging your Bibles the way that you would engage a conversation with another person you were talking to. If somebody just entered into a conversation and they started with a story, their story like, and being on our way, and then just launched into the new story, you'd have some questions, such as going on your way from where? And how does where you are coming from connect to what you are trying to tell me about where you're going to? You wouldn't just expect somebody to pick up a story right in the middle of a transitional point like that, would you? So why would we expect Scripture to do the same thing if we wouldn't do that with a conversation? Also, the fact that this has to do with worship and adoration, which is the part of the question that is still yet to be directly answered by Jesus. Also, the story of the Good Samaritan served as a polemic against the people of Israel who are too busy to stop and help this man who is beaten and robbed and beaten within an inch of his life on the side of the road because they were too busy doing religion. And then the man who does the will of God is the one who actually stops. Sound like anybody in the end of this chapter? Jesus is saying, Martha, just just, just just, stop. Like the guy in the last story that I just told. Just stop. The story unfolds the same structure with Martha, who's too busy to be attentive, and Mary, who is willing to do the will of God, actually taking the time to stop. And lastly, Jesus tells Mary that she has chosen what is necessary in 42 which definitely is leaning back to the question in verse 27 where the lawyer is essentially telling me saying Jesus tell me what is necessary and then the passage just ends so masterfully with Jesus saying look this is the necessary thing these are supposed to be connected so how does this passage actually answer his question well It has a lot to say in just a few short verses. It has a lot to say about worship. It has a lot to say about the things that we see as being of primary importance. And it has a lot to say about our posture towards Jesus. But when answering this passage about the love of God, the lawyer gives an answer first. So let's go back and look at the roots of the lawyer's question an answer. Back in verse 27 when he says what it means to love the Lord your God, he says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength as the greatest commandment. So basically when Jesus is asking him how does this read to you, he gives the Sunday school catechism answer. He goes directly to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the answer that he would have been trained to give as a boy even if you go to a synagogue service today they start their services with saying this they stand to the east and they say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem and that's how they start their services they say these words right there Deuteronomy 6 was sort of the John 3.16 of the Jewish world in that time in fact it's still recited today just about anywhere when synagogues are meeting. This passage has a lot to say in terms of loving God. So turn to Deuteronomy 6 for a moment, and then we'll end up back in Luke 10. Verse 6 tells us that these words that were just spoken, that Jesus says, yes, you've spoken correctly, do this and you will live. Verse 6 tells us these words are to be on our hearts Verse 7 tells us that part of loving God is to pass on that love to the next generation. It also tells us that the love of God should be expressed in everything that we do. We see that we are supposed to be consistent in our love of God, whether it has happens to be in front of our children, which is a big part of this passage. We read this passage during Um, baby dedications that we do here, but also that our love of God should be consistent in front of our enemies. If you were to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing for the sake of time, interestingly enough, almost one-third of the verses regarding loving God has to do with how we honor God and love Him in the midst of our enemies. How fascinating is that? Let me ask you. Would those closest to you define love of God as your defining characteristic? So let's move on a little step further and not just say those closest to you. How about your enemies? Deuteronomy is talking about the people that once held them captive in slavery, took away their very freedom, Attempted to snuff out their national identity, were willing to commit genocide against them when they decided to stand up for their own rights, and their only desire was the fulfillment of their own selfish appetite, regardless of how much pain it inflicted or who it was inflicted upon. Yet this passage shows that that person ought to know us by our love. Verse 14 shows us that our love for God should have a countercultural element in it. Let me read this verse. It's so cool. It says, You shall not go after the other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. So even if all of the prevailing culture was giving their hearts to things other than God, we should not be deterred. I wish the Christians could get this simple truth. And that there was not this weird expectation that for some reason culture should bend towards the people of God to be able to create a culture that would be much more amenable for Christians to be able to grow up and worship in. I hear more whining about that topic than any other topic in the history of history. The verse does not say that we will legislate our morality upon the unbelieving world in such a way that will create an easier posture for us to be able to love God. It says that we are to love God right in the midst of, of the people that are around us. And if you believe that God is sovereign, then you have to believe that he's at least sovereign enough to have chosen that you have been appointed to love him at this time, at this place, in this nation, under these laws, under these politics, under this mess. God sovereignly chose and he still calls us to love him him in the midst of that. God is not scared when liberals take over the congress. He's not like, how are my people going to love God? They're passing legislation that's it... like look at the context of Deuteronomy 6. You have Pharaoh trying to kill these people. It's not that bad for us here compared to that. And still, he's saying in the midst of that. You are called to love God. People that put their politics over their faith in Jesus are exposed by Deuteronomy 6.14. Your love for God should not waver based off of things like the prevailing political party who the president is, what Supreme Court justices have been appointed, whether our leaders are liberal or conservative, how people want to define sexual identity, how the leaders who do not claim to uphold the Bible and when they do claim to uphold the Bible are just doing it to pander to the evangelical vote for most of the time. Our faith in Jesus should not be deterred by those things. Whatever it is, we're told to simply love God in the midst of God, of whoever the people are around us. Look, let me put it to you like this before I move on. The less our culture resembles the character of God, the more that we're able to stand out as lovers of God, when we worship Him, as we are called to, in a countercultural way. Manner. If Christians understood this, there would be so much less posturing, and I'm pretty sure Facebook would just implode. Um, so maybe the most interesting thing about the love of God pertaining to our series is that loving God was always intended to be a communal thing, not just an individual thing. It brings up sharing our love of God with our children It talks about loving God being the prevailing posture of your household. It speaks of loving God being something that you are doing in the midst of your enemies and the culture. It speaks of sharing our love for God to the upcoming generations, reminding them of God's faithfulness to the previous generations. And then if you look at the final paragraph of Deuteronomy chapter 6, take notice of the pronouns. They are all we, us, and our language. So even in telling the next generations, our children, and our neighbors about the love of God, it was always intended to be a we thing. So what does this mean? It means that the love of God is something that we were always supposed to do together. Ain't nothing but a we thing, baby, because that's what it's saying. The passage about loving God, Jesus calls the greatest commandment, is all wrapped up in us and we language. Loving God was always supposed to be communal. That's why we talk about sharing together in the life of Christ. Our society has become far too individualistic. And we carry that individualism into what it means to follow God. And this is led people to be convinced that they can love God and follow him in a biblical manner apart from the community of the local church. So you have Christians who are feeding primarily off of podcasts and sermons on the internet or Christians who bounce or their faith bounces from one conference to the next, and they're looking to see what radical thing is this person saying at this conference and this person saying so that I could have something interesting to be able to attach my faith to. Jesus is interesting enough for you to attach your faith to. Or Christians that see their faith as a very personal and private thing between them their God, and their Bible. And the result is people who are defining what it means to love God in a way that runs completely contrary to the way that the Scriptures have defined the way that we are to love God. Look, I'm going to tell you as a guy who has spoken at my fair share of conferences, at the end of the conference, the speaker doesn't go home with you and live your life for Jesus. I've yet to ever do that for somebody. I've yet to ever just be thrown into the back of somebody's car in a burlap sack and been told, be my personal Levite. No matter how stirring the, other mes- uh, the message that you're listening to, the guy on the other end of the podcast isn't coming to dinner tonight to help you walk through what it means to love God and love your neighbor. No matter how great your devotions were, you, your Bible, and your cup of coffee do not constitute a trinity, much less community. And you cannot commune with a podcast or a conference in the way that we are called to commune with the people of God. And I'm not saying these things are useless. I'm not saying these things don't have their place. I'm saying that they're snacks and they're not supposed to be your primary meal. What I'm saying is they cannot take the place of biblical community. You cannot love God biblically without being part of covenant community. That's the message of Deuteronomy 6 that is quoted in Luke chapter 10. That's the message of the entirety of Scripture. That's the message that we even see within the community existing within the Trinity itself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being a communal thing that has existed before the foundation of the world. This is why we're teaching this class during church membership. We need each other. I need you so that I can love Jesus the way that I'm called to love Jesus. You need each other to be able to love Jesus the way that we're called to love Jesus. So what does our text in Luke, and I'm going to try to go pretty quickly through this because I spent too much time earlier on my notes like I always do, um, actually have to do with loving God? You know, people can get a little bit goofy when it comes to this text and read themselves of their own struggles into the Mary and Martha text. So let's look at it plainly to see what's there. So what we see, I just read the verses a moment ago, we see Mary is listening to the Lord's teaching. We see that Martha was distracted. We see that she, what she was distracted with, her much serving. We see that Martha is focused on what other people are not doing more than what she should be doing. Martha is telling the Lord how to do his job in verse 40. <clears throat> all of this running around is beginning to produce bad fruit in Martha, specifically the fruit of anxiety and worry, according to Jesus in verse 41. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and then Jesus ends that passage by saying that it's a necessary place. So you break these down. Mary is listening to the Lord's teaching. That's that's worship. You see that Martha's distracted. And I wonder, how many people just need that embrace of Jesus to just grab you by your shoulders when you're running around like a toddler that's been just drinking Kool-Aid all morning and you're just like, you know, just, you just need him to go, boom, boom, grab you by the shoulders and say, just stop for a second. Just stop. Contemplate. Your busyness is producing things in you that are actually pulling your heart further from me. Martha is more focused on what other people are not doing than what she should be doing again. If you are here today and you know that your heart is in that place, danger. If you're constantly focused on, you know, Sunday school would be so much better if more people would just be so stinking lazy, and if they would volunteer and serve it, then don't look at them. Look at you. Look at your heart and say, why is this so distracting to my worship? One thing is necessary. Look, this is working off the same structure as the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have people that are too busy being religious to actually stop and share together in the life of Christ by loving their neighbor. And then in this passage, you have somebody who actually stops and is attentive to the greater need than the religious need in front of them. And both passages conclude by showing that the person who actually stopped was shown to be the true worshiper. We do this passage a great injustice. And please hear me on this, all of you who have ever referred to yourself as a Mary or a Martha. We do this passage a great disservice when we try to break this into personality types. It's the common way that this passage is typically taught. Are you more Mary? Or are you more Martha? Look, I have never, ever heard people use the parable of the Good Samaritan, if we want to be consistent, to break down personality types. I've never heard people say, you know, I'm more priest and Levite than I am Good Samaritan over here. (laughs) Right? You're not going to hear that. So why do we do it with the next passage? Why wouldn't we do it? with the Good Samaritan passage. Because first of all, you'd sound like a jerk if you're like, you know, all I do is spend all day just stepping over hurting people, trying to get their mess on me. And the less messy they make me, the better my Christian life. You know that somebody would be like, yo, that's whack. But for some reason, this has become personality types. This passage about Mary and Martha were not intended to be two different options. There's one option presented in this passage, and that is of worshiper who worships the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want to end with this. If you notice, I skipped over a big portion of the text, the whole how am I doing loving my neighbor thing. So why does God put the whole loving neighbor in between the question of loving God? Because the two are not supposed to be disconnected thoughts. Loving God and loving neighbor are supposed to point to each other so much so that they cannot be torn asunder. Luke is using a story to express a truth that we see in 1 John. How can you claim to love God whom you do not see if you cannot love your neighbor whom you do see? Do you think John came up with that on his own? John was standing here with Jesus when it says, and they... Walked to Bethany in verse 38. Guess who the they was? John, the guy who wrote that book. He was with Jesus. Look, I I guess I'm going to put it bluntly to wrap it up. If you claim to love God, show it by the way that you love your spouse. If you're worshiping your Savior and you're not a loving person, to the person that Ecclesiastes nine says that God gave you to be your gift and your reward, then there are major holes in your worship. If you're a worshiper, but you come to church, hands up, and then get in the car and verbally abuse your children, you have a theological problem, and you've got a problem with Jesus If you are able to do all sorts of things in the name of religion but refuse to love your neighbor, then it casts a pretty big shadow over the reality of your love for God because a heart that's taking on the posture of worship is going to be taking on more and more of God's heart. So I'm going to ask if uh, Eric would come on up, and I've got a couple of questions for you that this might practically mean to apply to our lives. You who seek to love God... Do you start off first by reflecting on how deeply we're loved? That's why we take communion each week, folks. It's a reminder. Do this in remembrance of me. You are loved. Are you willing to devote your life to loving God regardless of the moral decay of the culture around you? And are you committed to live counterculturally in your pursuit of Jesus? A pursuit of Jesus should be so much more punk rock than Kenny G. Like, this isn't easy listening stuff. This should be like a fist in the air. I am going against society, and I'm willing to rage against the machine as I worship my Savior. Does your love for God extend into how you love your enemies to the point where even they see your love for God as something that's undeniable? Do you allow your love for God to be shaped by the community of God's people— And do you allow it to put to death this notion of Lone Ranger Christianity? Are you willing to just stop and wait and worship rather than doing without consideration to the fruit? And today, will you fight to choose the necessary place? We pray. Jesus, thank you for your love for us that is so amazing. I pray that as we partake of this meal right now, that we would be reminded of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said in the gospel of Luke that when we partake of this meal that we're about to partake of, he said, when you do this, do this often in remembrance of me. Remembering what? Remembering his love for you. Remembering that while you were yet sinners, that Christ died for you, the just for the unjust. Remembering that when he poured out his blood on the cross for your redemption, that he said, it is finished at the end of it and remembering that when he rose from the grave victorious that all of us who are in Christ rose with him. So today, if you have put your faith in Jesus, we would encourage you to partake in this meal and do this in remembrance of that great love. The way we do it is we come up the center aisles and there are stations each there. You can take the juice and take the cracker. We have gluten-free options up there for people who have... um,